Hello there, and welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series brought to you by Rethink Dyslexia, the podcast where we're breaking barriers and doing things differently. I'm Shay Wissell, your host, and I'm so glad you can join us. I'm a fellow neurodivergent, and I'm coming from the lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation, where I live and work. And I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to all the tribes across our beautiful country and to all First Nations people listening today. Our podcast was born in 2017 out of a need to give a voice to the stories and perspectives of adults with dyslexia. And our voice has grown stronger year after year. We're now a globally listened to podcast with guests from all around the world. Join us for insightful conversations about living with dyslexia and other neurodivergences across all walks of life. Our special focus is on adult education, employment, social and emotional well-being, and entrepreneurship. We're excited to be bringing you this episode and invite you to like and follow us, or even better, why not leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform? So let's get started. I'm I know I use this word excited all the time. I've got to find a new word. I need to build my vocabulary out. I think it's time to say elated, thrilled. I'm thrilled to have this guest on our show today, Nikki, who I met actually through LinkedIn, which is where I find a lot of wonderful people that I end up interviewing on uh, this podcast. And Nikki and I connected because of the work we're both doing around coaching and supporting uh, neurodivergent adults. And um, the conversation that Nikki and I are going to have today really forms the business and neurodiversity podcast series that uh, I've started creating now. And I'd like to warmly welcome Nikki onto the show today. So welcome, Nikki. Thank you very much, Shay. Happy to be here. Excited to be here. <laughs> you can use the word excited. Because <laughs> I do. I use it a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm always saying it. It's in everything. Excited and great. And I always say that. I'm <laughs> extend my vocabulary it's very very small which is a very dyslexic thing having but if we find our words and they work you know why wouldn't we keep them (laughs) it's true that's a very positive way of looking at (laughs) (laughs) so Nikki we did uh, connect through LinkedIn which was was very exciting because I haven't met a lot of people in Australia that are supporting or um, working with neurodivergent adults and I love meeting people that have an HR background because even though I don't have an HR background, um, through my research, I'm developing a lot of understanding around how we support staff through uh, organisational practices. And I wanted to learn more about what you're currently doing and how you ended up working supporting neurodivergent individuals. Great. Excellent. So do we have a few hours? Because <laughs> I, I have, have a long story, but no, I um, I have always been fascinated by people and I, in later life, realised that um, that fascination has been because I've been understanding, learning how to understand how we do things, how people do things. Um in, in later life, you know, in my 40s, I learned that I was ADHD and autistic. So a whole new lens of, of that people understanding has, has come into my world. Um, but I first started learning about neurodiversity and neurodivergence uh, six years ago. So it's it's a very common story. Um, we, we have our children have struggles in, in, in school and... Um, my oldest daughter was diagnosed as autistic 
And I just went down that rabbit hole because I needed to know, I needed to understand what her experience was. And as I did that, I started linking that to the HR world, to the world that I know. Um, And I saw that change needed to happen. So um, once, once you know something, you know, you have to do something. Initially, because my daughter was struggling, you know, the first thing I did was I thought was I'll start a school. You know, I have to make change immediately for my daughter. <laughs> then I realised, okay, let's go back to what I actually know. I know workplaces. I have a passion for organisational development and I can make a change for when she's ready to enter the workforce. So that's how I started in this world. Well, there's a couple of questions running through my head, but that last point you touched on around support once they get into the workforce, because what we know is that once you leave school, if you're lucky enough to get that support in school, because a lot of neurodivergent children aren't, that that all falls away once we enter the workforce. And there's a whole range of challenges that we then face. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing, as I said, I've been able to look at my world again with a new lens and even some practices that I did as an HR professional, you know, I'm horrified. <laughs> and and I've spoken to, um, I've, I've actually presented in front of groups of HR professionals and one question that was asked was, um, do you feel you've ever performance managed a neurodivergent person out of the workplace now that you've heard what Nikki has to say? And approximately uh, three quarters of the room put their hand up. So that's just one one picture of of my community, my professional community, where we all know we could do better. Um, So, yes, support. There are barriers to entering the workplace. Once you're in the workplace, there's there's barriers everywhere. (laughs) Um, Some people will mask and do everything they possibly can to fit into that workplace, but there are ramifications of that with burnout and huge mental health issues. So my focus has been on inclusive design for workplaces because whatever we do for neurodivergent people is going to benefit everyone in the workplace. Uh, And the most important thing to me is that we don't other, that we we don't have two streams neurodivergent people go this way and everyone else go this way, that we actually just create a workplace where everybody is appreciated and valued exactly as they are. They're in the jobs that suit them best and they're in the environment that works for them so that they can thrive. I always like to talk about um, universal design principles Mm. when I go out and talk and how if we are applying those principles and everybody is accepted and everyone has the access to everything they need to be able to do their job, and um, as you say, if we're supporting neurodivergent staff members, then we are supporting everyone in the workplace Yeah. when we implement those strategies. But going back a step, what was it like for you being diagnosed as an adult in your 40s with two neurodivergences, yeah. which is not uncommon at all? We've all got more no. usually. And as you and I were discussing earlier, I, I don't know if I've reached the full gamut of my of my um, neurotype. But what it was like, ADHD was 
that wasn't a surprise because as I learned about ADHD, and that was the first diagnosis I got, I I actually went into the psychiatrist and and I sat down and I just gave him a list of my, pretty much of my life, and um and he was just like, yeah, there's no doubt you're absolutely ADHD. <laughs> so that wasn't a surprise, but it was it was appreciated because then I could explain my experience better, particularly to my husband. You know, he was the one having to live with live with me, <laughs> um, and and. The little frust well, not even little frustrations, frustrations that I laughed off but were really hard for him. Things like me leaving my wallet on my bon- on the bonnet of my car for 24 hours and nobody stealing it, thank goodness. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, so that was that was a relief. That was helpful. The autism diagnosis was a surprise to me. <laughs> and I recognise that that is because I masked for so long and as I said, my interest has been people. <laughs> so I learnt people from a very early age. So it's been tricky to work out what is me and what is the mask. And the reason I didn't consider that I was autistic for such a long time was because when my daughter was diagnosed, the psychologist said to me, well, it's genetic, you know, but it can't be you because you've got great eye contact and you're really social. <laughs> so those beautiful stereotypes that we have, <laughs> that led me for many years to um, not consider that I was autistic. And then luckily I met an, a, two brilliant people who are absolute experts in the neurodiversity paradigm and understanding autism, and they both pointed out times when they saw me masking. And I said to one of them in a private conversation, do you think I'm autistic? And they said, well, I can't diagnose you, but I always recognise my neurokin. So from there, I went down that track and I worked with somebody who really understood and had worked with um, autistic, uh, those assigned female at birth. uh, And they had a really thorough process of being able to assess, you know, those people who've had that mask for so long. And it came out that, yes, um, ADHD and autistic. Wow. There's, I feel like I need to have um, a follow-up podcast with all these wonderful women I'm meeting that have been diagnosed in adulthood and because it's a whole different conversation that I'd love to explore with you around the impact of that as an adult. And it sounds like it's been quite positive for you in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> no, you go. Uh, it, it has been positive, but it's also been an eye-opener. So as I was started following um, neurodiversity uh, people, <laughs> um, I started, you know, I just saw so much to admire. And as I learned about um, autistic way of thinking and communicating, I was just like, this is cool. This is how it should be. Those should have been giveaways for me, really, that I was autistic, but, you know. (laughs) But so at the beginning I was very much um, cool. I get to join this club (laughs) because I really admired the people that I'd met. And then when I started telling people, there was a grief process because I recognised, I just didn't think because I'm so appreciative of neurodivergent 
thinking and communicating, I just didn't expect the bias and the stereotypes and some people changing the way they were with me. And, yeah, I, I just hadn't expected that. That was a bit of a slap in the face. Yes, it's interesting people's perceptions. Absolutely. And yeah, and it's because a... of my role, I you know, I, I put on LinkedIn that I'm ADHD and my my beautiful sister who said this from a place of love said perhaps you shouldn't be so forthcoming about your diagnosis. And I was like, well, I'm a pretty privileged and safe person. If I can't do this, what does that say for other people? So it was a... I need to do this because I am safe to do this and I need to be able to lift up other people who aren't so safe. I was really hesitant to, and I think it's only been in the last year or two um, where I've seen the foundation start to shift into now the Rethink Dyslexia and the consulting and the coaching that now I put it on LinkedIn where before I was really concerned when I was working in mainstream jobs and even though I am now still working in a mainstream job, um, I have a lot of support and it's very open and it's com constant conversation with my team and my manager and um, there is no pressure on me to write anything without it being edited. Like it's extremely supportive environment. So I'm really, really lucky. Mm. Um, and so it's only recently that I've actually put it on LinkedIn. I mean, it's pretty clear, but I think sometimes yeah. today, <laughs> I still have some people call me and ask me questions say well I'm a dyslexic and like oh really wow congratulations that was an unusual <laughs> response congratulations, congratulations. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I didn't say it. in my head I said mm -hmm. I wouldn't say congratulations actually I would that's not the word I would be using but anyway it's interesting different people's perceptions of um us the being neurodivergent some people think that it's wonderful yeah but for a lot of people I work with, it's not. And it's interesting about the masking because there's been a lot of papers written recently around autistic people masking. Mm. Um, and my research has shown the same for dyslexics, that we're very mm. good at hiding our dyslexia and putting in a lot of those, we wouldn't say masking, but um, coping strategies. Yeah, social morphing. That's well, another word. Around, yeah, or we have more around workarounds of how we're going to manage our, to hide our literacy difficulties. Yeah, right. So... Um, through my work, I found that people might be sending their work out of their organisation to get edited by family members, which I used to do. I used to get mm. my mum. I'd send reports for her to read if I wasn't in a safe work environment where I was getting the support. Um, emails, if they were really important, I'd send them to someone to read first before I sent it out. Um, lots of times I would do that. And what I found through my research is there were numerous strategies people were using but then leads yeah. to that fatigue that you talked about and then the job burnout. Yeah. And as you're speaking, it's reminding me of, of me too. I I would, the, the amount of time I would spend over an email, more from that perception management and am I saying the right thing? Am I going to be misunderstood? Uh, am I going to annoy somebody with what I'm saying? Have I said it in the best way? And my sister's a journalist and I would do the same. I'd send it to her and I'd get her to check. And I would sit on an email. The amount of time that we spend in that perception management, um, yeah, you've just reminded me. That was very much in my early to mid-career. I, Even now, actually, there are some times where I will sit on an email and I'll read it over again. And even when I send it, I'll still read it 
imagining how that person who's just received it is perceiving it. Oh, that's very good of you because I know that my emails can come across, like if it's really important email, I always get it checked because I've been told that my emails can be quite aggressive and abrupt. Really? Yeah. So I have to spend a lot of time putting fluff. And like if someone sends me an email, I say to my team, please only send me three lines. I won't read anything more. I just can't retain that type of information. Mm. Just talk to me. It's much easier. Um, But for my emails, particularly because I've worked in health and it's female dominated, they find that if I don't put how are you, how is your weekend, how are your kids going, like that pre-context, it's like you're having a conversation where in my head I just need to give you the information or I just need to receive some information so I can get my job done. Yes. And it's perceived as really rude. And even someone who's dyslexic said to me, oh, when I first started working with you, I thought you didn't like me or there was something wrong because of the way you wrote your messages. So now I know that you're dyslexic, I understand. And see, wow. I probably my error is that I'm not coming from a perception of how is this going to land with someone else because I'm so busy. Mm. I probably need to take some learnings from you today around well, perception of other people because we're adjusting thing, all the time. Yeah, but but it, it's time-consuming. You know, me reading and reading and reading, and as you said, it's when it's somebody who doesn't know me well that I will do that. Um, but to me, what you're describing is actually an attitudinal shift that's needed within that organisation because we all have different communication styles, neurodivergent, neurotypical, um, very, very often autistic people will be blamed for those very um, straightforward, you know, no messing around messages. And I actually like that. I I have moved from, and I now realise, a very ADHD exclamation marks. Actually, you'll still see smiley face and exclamation marks in my communication. But um, I've actually moved to an I don't care, take me as I am because I spent too many years hiding who I am and that's how I show up now. (laughs) But I'm also really aware of the people I'm writing to and I do, you know, I I think about um, that accessibility when I write my emails. So I write dot points, I'll write bold, I'll try not to put too much information in there. If I'm writing to somebody who I know really struggles with long emails but I need to get information across, I'll do a loom a Loom video and send that um, because it's about getting the message across in the way that you know that person needs it. So in terms of organisations, rather than criticising the messenger, <laughs> it's recognising that everybody will communicate in a, in, a, in a certain style and let's work out how we can adapt to what others need. Yeah, it is around how do we... Because everyone, like you said, regardless of being neurodivergent or not, we all absorb and understand information differently, whether it's cultural, whether it's our education level, like there's a variety of reasons. And my publisher's great. She will always, when she talks to me, she sends an audiogram, so we call it or an audio file. She always will talk to me instead of writing That's because great. my texting is really bad. And so I get criticised from family and friends because of my texting. Even my youngest brother, which blew me away, said the other day how abrupt my text messages were. And I was just shocked. I was like, what? I'm like, you can't be serious. I said, after the way you speak, and he's like, yeah, you know, you just, you don't say hello. You're just straight to the point. And I said, wow. I said, of all the people who would criticise my texting, I did not expect that from you. I can't stand it. try and fluff. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, my God, it's really shocked. should get it, shouldn't they? 
my other brother who is dyslexic, he just writes to me and says, I have no idea what you're saying. I should just audio record to him now. <laughs> and I say, but you're dyslexic. Can't you understand dyslexic talk? Because we have a certain way of talking. Yeah. See, I, I also have, and, and I've heard this is quite an autistic thing too. I have my own dictionary really. Um, so we we create our own words. My family, we've got our own words. So I really dislike texting, but if I have to text, I'll do it in my own way. <laughs> And they can either understand it or not. So, I, I think yeah. I've really switched to the other side. It might be the joy <laughs> of getting older. One one thing that's a joy is, um, you know, as I said before, take me as I am. You know, the people who are the people that I should have around me will love me as I am. And the people who don't are not meant to be in my world. <laughs> uh, you're Yes, you're 100%. And I think as we get older, we we feel more comfortable in our skin and being mm. able to be our true authentic selves. And from the work I've done, it feels like once you're, you're in a really good career position, which saddens me that we have to wait till we yes. are to yeah. be able to really be our true authentic selves or that we go out and we run our own businesses or we do something that you know, we're able to do where we're not going to be judged all yes. the time. Yeah. Um, but that makes me sad that younger people coming after us mm that that's the place still. And that's what I hope through our work that we get to change that yes. when you're, because I think, you know, children are coming through school with more and more support and that expectation is going to be in the workplace and the workplaces are going to have to progress to go, okay, well, these young people are coming through and if they're getting these supports at school, then they should be getting them in the workplace. By law, they should be anyway. They should be. And um, there is a fear potentially from employers and a, uh, we don't know what we don't know and this is going to cost me. <laughs> there's there's a lot of attitudinal shifts that we need to, to help employers take because it doesn't, doesn't need to be hard. And, you know, an inclusive workplace does come down to the leaders. It does come down to leaders who are self-aware, who are willing to grow, who are willing to be vulnerable as well as strong. <laughs> Um, everything's led from the top. So if our leaders are not able to do that, then that's challenging for the, old, the for the whole organisation to shift. One of the things that I'm seeing is the barriers, you know, and we're talking about it a lot and I'm so glad that we're talking about it because with the barriers, with the um, processes and systems that exist in many organisations, we are creating trauma and our children are traumatised from the school system. So then we put them into the workplace and no wonder people are choosing their own employment. But that is highly stressful in itself, you know, to, be, to run your own business. That's highly stressful. It's not ideal for many people. At Rethink Dyslexia, we are doing things differently. As a global leader in creating inclusive environments for adults with dyslexia, our commitment is to provide individuals with opportunities to live healthier, happier, and more connected lives. Through our range of tailored services, including coaching, learning and development programs, consultancy and training, we're helping dyslexic individuals, businesses, and organizations to better understand and support their dyslexic employees. So if you're looking for insights, inspiration, and expert advice on dyslexia and how you can provide inclusive practices and environments, then head to rethinkdyslexia.com to find out more or book your free consultation today. So, you know, I, I look at my children 
particularly my oldest, who is now ready to go into the workforce. And there's fear. There's there's real fear around will they will they take the time I need? Um, will I will I mess up and be um, and have consequences for that? So one of the things that I'd love to see in workplaces is that we we get we give people time at the beginning. You know, the onboarding process is huge. It's it's where you it, it makes or breaks that employee relationship. You know, that, that those days, that 90-day period, we want to see the person being nurtured, the manager getting to know them as a person, as an individual not as a label if a label came along with them and they're, they're getting supports, but understanding the strengths and where support is needed, um, letting people have more time to learn and providing learning in a way in many formats, you know, rather than reams of documents as you will have, have experienced. You know, those reams of documents, I the first thing I do, well, I used to do, is make turn them into flowcharts for myself. Um, I'm a very visual learner, but for others who don't have that ability to do that, you know, we're, we're making it hard from the beginning. Um, so just providing that that environment, you know, we're not going to have huge staff turnover. We'll lose staff in those first 90 days. That's such a cost to the organisation. Like if organisations were coming from that inclusive practice from the top down, you know, the chances of recruiting the right person. Mm-hmm then you know, getting them through that 90-day onboarding process properly and then retention and then being able to give people the opportunity to grow within your organisation or to grow them enough where they've got the skills they can't learn anymore and you can transition them out in a really positive way. I yes. mean, that's the ideal kind of utopia that yeah. we're looking for. But it's not just about, oh, we need to be nice and it's, you know, fluff fluff supporting people. And yeah, then, yeah. Well, that's actually from a work, like a, from a cost perspective, you know, your return on investment, everyone knows if you invest in your staff and you do these things properly, yeah. it's less costs, less time, less stress, and then your business is going to be highly productive. Yes. It's and it's exactly what you want. And people, what I don't think, uh, particularly, I, I've, I've worked with small and medium businesses, time poor, you know, it's, mm. um, and that investment in the upfront feels, uh, investment of time and money, sometimes is a bit of an argument to have because people don't recognise that the turnover costs, you know, the, it's kind of I, I see this quick to hire, quick to fire, um, and the turnover costs there can be one and a half times more of that person's annual salary and so much more money than that investment up front. But there's not that recognition. We need to turn it into dollars for people to see that, it's actually an investment that's worth making. Um, the other thing that that I find is interesting, I'm seeing there's a big push at the moment on inclusive recruitment, which is fantastic. That's a really great start. What I'm then seeing, though, is it stops at recruitment. Yes, yes. I had and, a conversation with someone, a big, big national organisation the other day, and that was the thing. They said, oh, we need to get buy-in to do the the retention support. Yeah. And it's like, like it, it, it's that false, false promises, isn't it? You go yeah. in, you've got this beautiful recruitment process. I'm coming into the most inclusive, fantastic organization. And then you get in there and it's like, oh, all these promises don't exist. 
it's like getting an assessment and then there's no interventions for you. Yeah. Like in, you know, it's you telling someone there's something, you've got this difficulty, but then once you know it, you can't get the support for it to help manage or improve it. Exactly. So I was yeah. really surprised with this company I was talking to because it's exactly that. I mean, you're setting people up to fail and it's not a safe, psychologically safe environment that they're, they're really going into. Mm. But when you were talking about that it can be a cost to small business and medium business, I think there's no cost to attitudinal change from leaders. And no. there's so much free information like we were talking about before the podcast, free information for people now, whether it's podcasts, all different things that leaders, managers, HR departments can be doing for free to help yeah. raise their consciousness about these topics. Exactly. Uh, it costs nothing, but improve but personal development for yourself, which is really important as a human. It is. It's really important. And so one of one of the things when I've been hired by um, employers to coach employees who, you know, I'm, I've been really grateful because these employees might have gone down the performance management process, but instead they came to me for coaching, um, which is a really great first step for that organisation. What I do, what I ensure is I don't just coach the employee, but I also coach the manager because the employee isn't a problem to be fixed, even though the business might think so. <laughs> um, but it's it's more, you know, the, the barriers, the environment that that employee is in has caused challenges and, has, and is disabling in, in some cases. So I will have a starting point for both where there is a common language, a common understanding about strengths and appreciation, and then we'll work on how each, what each can do to make that um, relationship stronger so that both of them are working better together. It's not about one person being a problem, which is how we've always looked at it in the past, particularly from that HR performance management, the employee is a problem, let's get rid of them. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have, oh, and it, it breaks my heart to think of it now, you know, in the past we've looked at culture fit and an employee doesn't fit that culture we don't want to look for culture fit. When, when we look at culture fit and somebody is performance managed out because they don't fit, what we're actually doing is penalising neurodivergent traits. So things like being socially awkward, being easily distracted, you know, those things that we might performance manage for, people who don't get, that don't understand, um, have role clarity or they're struggling to fit in, those are all things that should not be a performance management issue. <laughs> That's where understanding and um, attitudinal shifts need to occur. And that's where I find a lot of my coaching clients are coming through. When organisations are hiring me, it's because they've hit performance management and then suddenly they've disclosed, well, actually, I have this disability mm. recognised as a disability under the Discrimination Act and Fair Work. Um, and then they're coming to me. And it's great to hear that, you know, we're, we're, we're doing similar processes around it's not just about working with the employee, it's working with the HR and the manager to educate them around, well, actually, it's technically illegal for you to be performance managing some of these issues yeah, yeah. for someone that's dyslexic. Um, but it is a delicate fine line, isn't it, where you're trying to educate an organization without shaming because it's not about shame it's about yeah. again raising consciousness exactly and, and it's building that relationship of trust as opposed to policing that you know you're doing this wrong this wrong this wrong no let's 
let's build this um, as a more inclusive environment for every single person because whatever we're doing to help this person, there are going to be things that we put in place that are going to benefit other people as well. Um, yes, they are. And that's, I think, going back, reinforcing that, that it's about you can do this for your whole organisation, not just this individual, and we're not just pinpointing a neurodivergent staff member mm. um, because of their difficulties when some of this stuff can be, you know, rolled out for everyone. And then we're not just pigeonholing, well, that person's autistic or that person's dyslexic, so we're just going to do that for them. Um, yeah. Some of these tools and strategies are valuable for everyone. Exactly. And and when we do that, you know, if if we put accommodations in once somebody has disclosed, that's another way of, of othering, you know. And so this person, oh, you get to work from home, that would benefit me. I'd work so much better from home. And it creates that us and them as opposed to we. So when I talk to people, things that have been considered accommodations in the past, let's just build them into this is how we do things here. We then have this combined feeling of well-being, you know, um, as opposed to an us and them situation. And people don't need to disclose, you know, sorry, I'll just, um, 76% of neurodivergent people don't disclose. Mm. I, I saw that statistic, can't remember where, but it, um, people are frightened to disclose. So if we just create these environments, we are supporting those who haven't disclosed. Yes, because what we find is that people are only disclosing when either someone says to them there's something wrong with you, which I've been told in the past, oh. or, um, they've been performance managed or they uh, finally feel that they're psychologically safe, which is not very often that mm. they're doing that. Um, it's more that something has come up where they, they've hit a barrier that they can't navigate without having to disclose and then that opens up a whole can of worms for them. Yeah. We could talk about this topic for ages and I think we've gone, um, I think it's been a really broad topic, which has <laughs> been great, a little bit about yourself and a little bit about how we're coaching, but also I think this conversation is really valuable for those in HR and managers and leaders and for dyslexic and neurodivergent individuals that might be listening. But are there any specific things before we wrap up or key points that you'd like to get across to particularly employers or managers that might listen to this podcast or neurodivergents that are trying to manage in the workplace yeah. and be masking their two big questions. I won't yeah. ask any more because they're quite broad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess the key points, and we all know this, but culture starts from the top. So for leaders, it is a mindset shift. It is learning. It's um, it's bringing the whole team along for that learning because it shouldn't be up to the neurodivergent people to teach others. It should be having a common language, uh, a culture where people are appreciated for what they bring, for their strengths, so very strengths-focused, um, and getting to know the individual. So those are some key points. But the final key point is at every part of the employment life cycle, there are things that we can be doing to create a more inclusive environment that aren't going to cost a lot of money. They're going to be, as you said, that um, shifting, lifting people up, this learning. It doesn't have to be expensive to change these things, but it does need to be consistent and done from a good place. And for those who are neurodivergent in workplaces, was that your other question? Yes. Yeah. Um, 
learn as much as you can about yourself because what I've found is that if we can tell people how we work best, if we are solving that problem, I said that in quotes, um, if, if we are solving the problems that people are seeing, it's easier to make change happen. So now I, I have the privilege of understanding how I work best and I'll say to people, let's not have a meeting in a cafe because I won't hear a thing you say. Um, we don't have to disclose that we're neurodivergent. When we talk about those things, we can say that smell gives me migraines. Uh, do you think we can get rid of it? You know, there's, there are things that we can do to support ourselves without outing ourselves if we're not in an environment where we feel safe to do that. That's some really great strategies. Thank you. And on the cost just uh, diverging before we wrap up. On the cost, I, I don't know whether employers know that they can actually access federal funding of up to $30,000 for reasonable adjustments and accommodations for individuals. And yeah. so there really is no excuse mm. for putting in um, accommodations and supports for individuals that need it. Yeah, absolutely. And it is. It's a bit of a secret, isn't it? Mm, it is. Um <laughs> One that I think organisations really could be drawing on. And, I mean, I know for dyslexic individuals, we don't need $30,000 worth of reasonable adjustments. No. It might be some tech or a bit of coaching support or, you know, some editing support. It's not going to be major infrastructure changes. And so I think, you know, we need to try and help employers understand and reduce that fear of cost and additional time because there's actually funding out there to support them. Yeah, and that tech that tech is becoming mainstream, isn't it? Mm. So implementing it for the business as a whole is going to benefit the business. Um, there's also free things out there. Um, I don't know if you notice, but when we come on Zoom, I have a, a, a free system that comes up and it writes transcript for me and the transcripts are brilliant. It also lets me highlight important things and create action items right in that meeting. So for an ADHD, that's a brilliant tool and it's free. Oh, I'll need to get that. Oh, can you tell us, tell the listeners? Yeah, yeah, it's called Fathom. Fathom. F-A-T-H-O-M. Great. I'm going to look into that because that would be really useful for people that are having to take minutes. Yes. Things that are dyslexic or yeah. or anyone really um, to help them. So that's a great tool. Thank you. Yeah. For I, I love it because I can bookmark. If there's something you're talking about that I think I really love that, I want to come back. I can highlight something really interesting that you're saying and it just it brings me to that point in the video. It's, <laughs> I promise they don't sponsor me. Um, <laughs> but but you're uh, right. There are a lot of free tools and that's when I do my coaching. A lot of times people with dyslexia aren't actually aware because we're so used to putting in our own workarounds yeah. um, and technology changes all the time. So sometimes it can be hard to keep up and it's good to sit down with someone that can say, well, these are the types of things that I use or that I know of that are helpful. Some are charged and some are free. And yeah. most times organisations can put them on um, for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Just knowing that they're there, Grammarly, you know. Yes, yeah. Grammarly Grammarly subscription is really handy. Yeah, one of my organisations put it um enabled everyone to install it. They just brought yeah. a subscription for the whole organisation. And so then I didn't have, because people used to walk up to me and say, "What's why are there, there lines or why is this coloured? And I say, well, this is an editing software that helps me and other people needed it. So they put it on for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant. You know, the more we do, um, the more we're going to see 
staff retention, employee engagement, staff retention, much more satisfied people. And as we know, if we've got happy staff, we've got happy clients. <laughs> we're going to see more innovation. We're going to grow customer bases. There's so many benefits from creating inclusive workplaces. And I think for me, when I go to speak to organisations, it's not just around inclusive workplace practices for your employees. It's actually around the flow and effect to your clients. So if you're putting mm. these strategies in place within your organisation and then you step back and you say, okay, from a client's perspective, if they're neurodivergent, how are they approaching our company? And yeah. are there things that we are doing internally for our employees that we could be actually rolling out to our clients? And that then creates a huge inclusion practice for everybody. And exactly. has amazing flow on effects. Huge flow on effects. It's it's really becoming a must-have now. It's the differentiator, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I I've I've joined a team of 17 in a new project, and it is the most diverse group of people I've ever worked with. And the ease of which that workplace works is I, I didn't I didn't realize how easy it was till I stepped into that first meeting. <laughs> um, and it really is the the people that make it easy. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Nikki. I think that's a really great way to end our conversation. And I'd love to have you on again. This is the trouble right now is we have such great conversations. I'm having people back and I'm growing my podcast series, tripling the size of it to its full. <laughs> so I don't know how I'm going to keep up with trying to published them all is now <laughs> challenge but I really really appreciate you coming on the show today and for talking about such important work that you're doing and that um will encourage I hope people that were listening to really um think about their workplace practices and how we can make them more inclusive for everybody um and so that we're all living healthier happier more connected lives which is what we're all wanting so thank mm-hmm. you so much thank you Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about any of Nikki's amazing work, then please head to rethinkdyslexia.com.au. And remember, if anything we discussed today was triggering, please make sure you consider getting some support. You can always uh, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or a Beyond Blue counsellor on 13 00 4636. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Take care and bye for now.